Welcome to Practical Christian Living. God had a problem. God doesn't really ever have problems, by the way. God doesn't make mistakes. You, you don't want to ever hear God say something like, whoops. God doesn't make mistakes and God doesn't have problems because he knows what he's doing. But God needs to get Mary and Joseph and Mary, who is ready to give birth from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And I got to think that when they got the news that they had to leave and go to Bethlehem, that they thought, what a drag. Christmas is the perfect time to look at why we believe what we believe as Christians, because the very basis of our belief is Jesus, fully God and fully babe, born in a manger, human. Whatever difficulties you may be facing this Christmas, may you rejoice in our wonderful counselor who gave up heaven to come down for you and me. Here's the first part of our study in Luke chapter 2 with Robert Furrow. Father, we want to thank you so much for this passage. It truly is rich and that we can take a look here at the birth of Jesus and see what we can learn from it. And we thank you for this. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So today we're covering Luke uh, chapter 2, and we're going to look at the lessons that we can learn from the birth of Jesus. Uh, but we also want to look at the Christmas prophecies. These are the prophecies in the Old Testament that spoke of the time of Jesus being born. And these are so incredibly powerful and should be encouraging to us as a Christian that we would know what we believe is true, that we are following what is the truth, that Jesus actually fulfills these prophecies. We're also gonna look at something else, and that is the providence of God, the way the providence of God works. So God gives us free will, but God is also sovereign. God is incredibly sovereign. He's so sovereign, he gave us free will. He lets us make choices. We can go right or left. We can make choices that are good and bad for that which is of the flesh or of the spirit. The Bible tells us all these things. But there are also certain things in your life that God has set in stone. There are certain things that will happen. There are certain things you need to do, you will do, and God will make them happen. And God uses providence to make that happen. And we see that clearer here in this account than we do anywhere else in the scriptures. God had to get Mary and Joseph from Nazareth to Bethlehem, and he uses providence to do it. There are places that God needs to get you from where you are now to where he needs you to be, from what's going on in your life now to where, what he needs going on in your life, from who you are now and your growth and where you are with Christ to where he wants you to be. These are all things God wants to do in, in your life, and he will use providence to get you there. And this is one of those very best passages that really helps us to understand that particular aspect. So just a reminder as to where we are, I wanna give you the setting. You remember that Luke is really written in incredible Greek. Luke is a physician. He's well-educated. He writes Luke and he writes Acts. And when he begins to write Luke, he, he tells the story of the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of Jesus in parallel fashion. It's actually structured incredibly well. It's, it's really, uh, you have the angel appearing to Zacharias and then the angel appearing to Mary. 
You have Mary's song when she goes and sees Elizabeth, and you have Zachariah's song as his son is born. Both of these are miraculous births. John the Baptist is born to a woman well advanced in years, and that's a miracle. And of course, it's a miracle for a virgin to conceive by the Holy Spirit in her womb. And so these stories are told side by side, and they're told in parallel fashion. This is the end of that section. It's an introductory section. If you, when you look at it in the Greek, you can see this is his beginning. This is where he's introducing the, the stories that are told in this parallel fashion. Well, Luke chapter two, verses one through 20 is the very end of it as he now tells the account of the birth of Jesus. And we pick it up in verse one where he says, and it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world would be registered. Caesar Augustus is the first emperor of Rome. It's the very beginning of the Roman Empire. It's been the Roman Republic. Julius Caesar is the one that put it into place where it could become a republic. And he is, he is the great uncle of Augustus, Caesar Augustus, and he is his adoptive father. So he adopted him and he ended up becoming the emperor. He will have his stepson, Tiberius, who will become emperor in 14 AD. So he became emperor sometime around, I think, 36, if I remember correctly, Caesar Augustus. And then Tiberius will become the emperor of the world. This is the Roman Empire. This is the emperor of the world at this point. And he will be emperor until 37, until after Christ. So the, the Roman emperor, that the Roman emperors that were around during the life of Jesus was Augustus when Jesus was very young. And then during the ministry of Jesus, it was Tiberius. Christianity would make such an impact on the world that before too long, Paul would stand before Nero, another emperor. He would stand before one of the emperors. And so God uses a decree from Caesar Augustus. However that happened, Caesar just got a hankering and decided, you know what, we need to register the people again. They registered people rather regularly. Within every few years, they registered people. They wanted to know how big their kingdom was, they wanted to know how many men were of fighting age. That's one of the main reasons that Rome did these kinds of census. They also wanted to know what kind of taxes they were going to bring in. It wasn't that they went to register. That wasn't paying taxes, but they did want to know for bookkeeping purposes. And um, Augustus, he built Rome up as much as anybody. He did building projects in Rome as much as anyone did at all. And so Caesar Augustus is the emperor of the world that somehow God moves on to be able to move Mary and Joseph from Nazareth all the way over to Bethlehem. And we'll talk about why that's important here in just a minute. It says this census, verse two, first took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. So all went, everyone to his own city. Now let's talk about verse two really quickly. And I wanna make sure to cover this with you because this is a problem text. And I want you guys to know that it's a problem text so that when you run into someone who points out this problem text, they're not driving the narrative. So here's what they say about this text. They say Quirinius wasn't a, the governor of Syria when Jesus was born. And we don't have any account of a registration taking place during the time that Jesus was born. So your Bible has a mistake in it. Your Bible has an error in it. That's their narrative. And especially those of you who are college students, you, this is one of the big ones that they point to. So you will run into it when you are in school. And I want you to know how to respond to that. 
So there are two different things that biblical scholars look at with this text. Number one, during the reign, now Quinarius was governor of Syria. Syria is to the north of Palestine. Pilate would become the governor of Judea. Syria is up above it. So he's not talking about who was governor of that exact same region. Number two, they have found some inscriptions that talk about a governor who reigned during this time who had two reigns, who reigned briefly and then came back and reigned again. The name of that governor has not been found. Maybe it will be, but it's during the time frame of Quinarius. So it's possible that Quinarius was governor for a short time in Syria and then became governor at 6 AD for a longer time in Syria. So that's possibly what was taking place here. Number two is in the wording of this text. It says this census first took place while Quinarius was governing Syria. The word for first there can also be before. And you can do this through a Strong's Concordance. If you pull up a Strong's Concordance and you look up the word here for first and you find all of the places that it's translated in different ways, it is translated at pl in places as before. If you read it that way, it would be this census first took place when Quinarius, uh, excuse me, uh, this census took place before Quinarius was governor would be the way that it would read. Either way, the history of Luke is so good. This is the one flaw that they'll find that they'll look back on. The history of Luke is so good in the rest of the book of Luke and the book of Acts that some kind of an argument from silence, well, they didn't have, a, there's no record of a registry. Well, there's other registries that happened that didn't have records. And we don't know all the details of when people were governors and when they weren't. And so the rest of it is so good that we look at this and go, let's just pause on it. Let's just you know, give, give Luke the benefit of a doubt from my perspective and believe that we're gonna discover something because so much of it has happened in archeology span where we go, wow, the Bible was right. Where everyone criticized the Bible, the Bible was right. And this has happened so many times before. It happened with Pilate and the Pilate stone that was discovered. And I don't want to take up time here on Christmas to cover all of that, but I didn't want to go over this text without talking to you about it so that when you run into someone talking about it, you're like, what did, why didn't Robert ever tell us about that? He just, was he ignoring it? Was he going by it? I wanted you to know that this is a significant passage that people will speak against the Bible on, all right? But there are ways to answer it. So then in verse three, everyone went out to be registered. And here we have Joseph also went up from Galilee out of the city of Nazareth into Judea, the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. Now, God had a problem. God doesn't really ever have problems, by the way. God doesn't make mistakes. You, you don't wanna ever hear God say something like, whoops. God doesn't make mistakes and God doesn't have problems because he knows what he's doing. But God needs to get Mary and Joseph and Mary who is ready to give birth from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And I got to think that when they got the news that they had to leave and go to Bethlehem, that they thought, what a drag. This is the worst. There's no doubt Mary thought, are you kidding me? I am, I am nine months pregnant and I'm gonna have to travel from the Galilee to, to Jerusalem. Bethlehem is about five miles away from Jerusalem. There's no doubt she thought this is a horrible thing, but it was a great thing. Because in the Old Testament, in Micah 5.2, there's one of the Christmas prophecies. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, though you are little among the thousands of Judah, 
out of you will come forth one who will be a ruler in Israel, whose goings forth are from everlasting. This passage tells us a couple of things. Number one, that a ruler is going to be born in Bethlehem. And you say, how do you know that this ruler is going to be the Messiah? Because his days are going to be from everlasting. He is pre-existent. This is one of the the incarnate passages which talks about God becoming a man. And it is the fulfillment. And it was thought to be the fulfillment. So much so that when the wise men, a couple years from this particular event, they go to Jerusalem and say, where is the Messiah going to be born? The men of Herod say in Bethlehem. And they quote this verse. So he had to be born in Bethlehem. And so God uses this decree from Augustus to get them where he wants them to go. And I'm suggesting that sometimes when things happen in our lives and we go, what a bummer. That couldn't be any more the worst time that maybe God's doing something grand. Maybe God's working in providence. Providence is what, when the, in the natural course of our lives, God does his work. And especially when it's in things that maybe we don't like or that happen that are bad from our perspective, but God's doing what God needs to do. And for us to trust, that's part of faith. Part of faith is saying, I don't know why this is happening, but I believe it's happening for something that you want for me. And it wasn't a bad thing. I mean, it was uncomfortable for her. She had to go through, you know, you gals who have been nine months pregnant. Can you imagine having to travel several days on a donkey or, or whatever while you're that pregnant? How absolutely, probably brought on the pregnancy, right? Probably all the jostling and bouncing and it was just like, okay, contractions, this is happening. We then get to the middle of verse four where it says, they went down to Bethlehem because he was of the house of the lineage of David. This gives us, brings us to another Christmas prophecy and that is that the Messiah would, would sit on the throne of David and would be a descendant of David. The Messiah had to be a descendant of Abraham because Abraham was promised one of your descendants is going to bless all nations. That's a pretty incredible promise to give a man, by the way. You're going to have a son and, and that son's going to bless all nations. Could you, you're going to have a descendant and that descendant is going to bless all nations. Can you imagine being given that promise? Or, or even for Mary, that her son would bless all nations? Imagine that being told about your son. You know, we, we, we think about our children pretty positively, moms especially. You're a good boy. You could imagine having a son who would bless all nations. But he has to be of the house of David because he's called the son of David several times. And it's, it's interesting to me that especially when he runs into Gentiles, when he runs into the woman at Tyre, when he runs into one of the centurions, they ask him, oh, son of David. They ask him that particularly, which is interesting. They knew the, the prophecies that the Messiah was going to sit on the throne of David and would be a descendant of David. So he has to go there to be registered because David is from Bethlehem. Remember, Samuel went to go see Jesse because he was told one of your sons is going to be king. And he went and he, and he had all six of his older brothers go in front of him. And his oldest, Elib, was tall and good looking. And Samuel thought, there's a king right there. I see why God sent him here. And then God said, no, don't look on his outward appearance because I don't look on the outward, I look on the inward. And finally, when all six had come by, he said to Jesse, do you have any more kids? And he goes, yeah, there's a shepherd boy out there. And he, you know, the least of the family is taking care of the sheep. And Jesse said, bring him here because we are not gonna sit down until he's anointed king. And they brought him up and Samuel poured oil over David's head and anointed him as king. Now David 
develops a kingdom and sits on that throne and is promised that the Messiah will sit on your throne and establish it forever and ever. Again, talk about privilege. The privilege that David had as a king and then the privilege that his throne would be established forever and that the Messiah would be called the son of David. Verse five, it says, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife who was with child. But betrothal was like halfway between an engagement and a marriage. They had another ceremony they still needed to do. So she was betrothed, she was with child. Obviously, we've already learned that she's a virgin and the Holy Spirit would place that baby inside of her womb supernaturally. And then in verse six, it says, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. And she brought forth her firstborn son. And being a firstborn son gives you certain rights. We learn later on in the Bible that he's not only the firstborn son of Mary, but he is the firstborn of God the Father. And you say, well, how could he be the firstborn? Adam was the first one that was ever born because Jesus is the firstborn in the sense of the one that all the inheritance goes to. It's not firstborn in number. It's the firstborn rights that were given to Jesus. And the rest of the family, the rest of the kids that came after the firstborn would share in the inheritance of the firstborn. They would get a portion of it, but you would share in the inheritance of the firstborn. That means that if you were a second or thirdborn son or daughter, you wanna make sure your relationship stayed really, really good with the firstborn because he eventually he would inherit it all. He would inherit everything. And the Bible says that Jesus has inherited everything and that you and I share in his inheritance. We are adopted children of God and it is so spectacular what you have for eternity that Paul said this to the church at Corinth. He said in chapter one of 1 Corinthians, you have everything. He's writing to them about several problems they have. There's jealousies, there's bickering, there's arguments, there's carnality about which is the better leader and who they follow. And he's dumbfounded by it. He's like, you have everything. You've got it all. Don't you know what you have? And that's the truth for us as well. You think, well, I don't have very much. I've struggled my whole life. No, you have everything. You have it all because you share in the inheritance of Christ, the book of Ephesians tells us. And that's absolutely amazing. So he is her firstborn son. And I think it's very specific that he told us here that he is the firstborn. And it says, she wrapped him in swaddling clothes, which is uh, just in blankets of their day and laid him in a manger because there was no room for him in the inn. So they laid him in a feeding trough. And this speaks of the humility of the Messiah. When kings go places, kings and queens, they generally want to be treated really well. They want people to go out of their way. They want the best of whatever it is. They want the best softest beds. They want the best accommodations that they can have. And for the most part, people would put, well, put up with it, right? Even today where there are monarchies, people will put up with it, but that's not what Jesus did. Jesus humbled himself and became a man. And he didn't go to a princess to be brought up in a palace somewhere, but he went to a, a woman who was gonna struggle. They left Nazareth. They moved to Bethlehem and they stay there for at least two years because it's two years later that the wise men show up. I know that messes up your, your little, you know, nativity, but the wise men aren't there. I always say, move them to the other side of the house. There are ways away. They're hanging out at this point in Babylon somewhere as the wise men of Babylon. 
put them two miles down the road, something. Put them, in, put them in your children's house. Have them there, and you take theirs and put them in your house, and it'll be more accurate. But they stayed there for that long. Why did they just get kind of stuck in Bethlehem? Well, they had a baby, right? And he couldn't travel right away because he wants to protect this baby. And so he has to get a job, and he gets a job in Bethlehem, and he just kind of stays there. And it's two years later when the wise men show up, and then he's warned in a dream that he has to get up and flee to Egypt. And so he comes as a child. Let me read you Philippians chapter two, verse five, which talks about what Jesus gave up and how he humbled himself. It says, let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. This, you have the same mind that he had, who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. And here's the mind we're supposed to have. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant coming in the likeness of men. Paul says, have that same mindset. Don't, don't be looking out for your reputation. Be of no reputation. Humble yourself. Don't think more of yourself than you should. This is such an important teaching for us, but it helps us to understand that Jesus humbled himself in becoming a man and did not come to a wealthy family, did not come to a family anyone could brag about. It goes on to say, and being found in the appearance of man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death on the cross. He humbled himself and became obedient. And that's why they laid him in a manger and not in a crib. That's why he wasn't born in a palace with silk sheets and he's wrapped in swaddling clothes. So then, and just let me give you a couple of verses now that speak about this child being born because we just read of the birth of the child here. So in Isaiah 9, 6, we have one of these great Christmas prophecies that says, for unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. Now this is this incredible prophecy that there's gonna be the birth of a child. This is 700 years before the time of Christ, by the way, 675 or so. So it's hundreds of years before the birth of Christ. There's the promise that we're gonna have a child born to us, a son born to us. And then it says, and the government will be upon his shoulders and he will be called wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. Here we have something we find in the Old Testament, which we'll talk about more in another place. In the Old Testament, we find dual powers in heaven. We find the, the angel of the Lord and Yahweh. And we find the son of man who reigns and rules alongside of the ancient of days in Daniel chapter seven. There's many passages where we find these two people, persons, who are ruling together in heaven in the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament gives us a complicated picture of God. It doesn't give us this picture of, we know that God is one, but we know that God is complex. So you have this complexity of God taught throughout the Old Testament. And here's one of them, a child who's gonna be born, who's gonna be called heavenly father, or is gonna be called everlasting father and mighty God. Literally it says, this child who will be born will be called mighty God. This is one of the verses that I go to when I'm debating someone whether or not Jesus is deity. He is mighty God. The only response I've ever gotten back from people is, well, it says mighty God, not almighty God. And then I go to Revelation chapter one, where Jesus says, I'm the first and the last, the beginning and the end, the alpha and the omega, the almighty God. You look at the passage up in Revelation, it's the son of man who's telling you, I am almighty God. Very clearly, very clearly in the scriptures. Who is that child that was laid in that manger? It was mighty God, which is just absolutely mind-boggling. And these things were foretold. 
thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living with Robert Furrow. We hope that our verse-by-verse studies truly help you to see that God is real. He wants a personal relationship with you, and His Word is life-changing. If you'd like to hear more of Robert Furrow's teachings, visit calvarytucson.com. For our local listeners, we invite you to join us at one of our two campuses. Our East Campus at Speedway and Camino Seco meets Saturdays at 6 p.m. and Sundays at 9.45 a.m. Our West Campus, south of Palo Verde and I-10, meets Sunday mornings at 8.30 and 11 a.m. Our midweek service times are Wednesday evening at 6 p.m. at our East Campus and 7.15 p.m. at our West Campus. If you prefer, you can watch our service at live.calvarytucson.com and also on our Facebook page and YouTube channel. Our online campus is available during East Campus service times. If Practical Christian Living has blessed you and you'd like to donate, please visit pclaz.org. That's pclaz.org where you can make a secure one-time donation or sign on to become a monthly partner on a reoccurring basis. Have you accepted Jesus into your life or do you have questions about salvation? We'd love to hear from you. Email us at saved at calvarytucson.com and don't forget to follow us on social media, Instagram at Calvary Tucson or Facebook at Calvary Chapel Tucson. We want to remind our local listeners that you can watch Practical Christian Living TV Sunday mornings at 8.30 a.m. on KGUN 9. Thank you for joining us for Practical Christian Living. Do you love Jesus? Do you want to dig deeper in your walk with God? Then you are a great fit for REACH College with enrollment opportunities. To attend as a student or an auditor, the courses challenge you to analyze your way of thinking as you grow in your walk with Jesus. Find out more at thereachcollege.org. That is thereachcollege.org.